Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled that you're listening this morning. I'm in the studio today with Ben Renfro, who will be helping with this interview. Today we'll be interviewing Casey Luskin with the Discovery Institute. He has graduate degrees in both science and law, giving him expertise in both the scientific and legal dimensions of the debate over evolution. For all of you that think that the evidence for evolution is overwhelming and that if you disagree with evolution, you're crazy, listen carefully because you'll find out otherwise from someone who knows what they're talking about. Mr. Luskin works as research coordinator for the Center for Science and Culture, assisting and defending scientists, educators, and students who seek to freely study, research, and teach about the scientific debate over Darwinian evolution and intelligent design. He's also the co-founder of the Intelligent Design and Evolution Awareness Center. He's authored a few different books, and I'm excited to have him on the show this morning. Welcome to The God Solution, Casey Luskin. Thanks for having me on. Well, Casey, I know that you've done a lot of work in both the scientific areas and the legal areas, and you have graduate degrees in both areas. I'm just going to share a short story of mine that might be something you've dealt with. I was in a class in college, a science class, and I challenged the professor on her description of how life came from non-life, and I referenced some of the statistics for how impossible that would be and asked her how she'd deal with the statistics. She wrote it off. I asked the question again in class. She wrote it off again, and she ended up docking me a letter grade. She said that I got the definition of DNA transcriptase wrong on the final exam, and that dropped me a letter grade, and the whole class it ended up being. And I went to her, and I showed her that my definition was identical to hers that she handed out on the handouts in the class. She said, I don't care that it's the same that I gave you. I refuse to change your grade. And that was my first experience with being academically punished for my willingness to follow the evidence or to consider the statistics that the academic norm refused to consider. You deal with this kind of thing kind of often, correct? Yeah, unfortunately, Nate, we we do deal with this uh, fairly often, and it's definitely not the first time that I heard a story of a student who had his grade knocked down because he maybe questioned a standard evolutionary argument um, and did it, you know, not in a disrespectful manner, was just trying to ask questions as a young thinker who was trying to understand the issues, you know, and just really asking questions in good faith, wanting to, as you said it, follow the evidence where it leads. So I'm, I'm sorry to hear that that happened to you where, when you were a student, but it's not the first time that we've seen this. In fact, we've actually seen professors who have admitted in the past that they would mark down students who maybe uh, tried to support an intelligent design viewpoint. There was a professor at the University of Waikato a couple years ago who actually wrote on her blog. She said, if a student were to use examples such as the bacterial flagellum to advance an ID view, then they should expect to be marked down. And, And this is a very rare example where a professor was openly admitting that they would mark down a student. We've heard many other cases and situations where students were marked down or threatened with being marked down for, you know, asking a question that challenged the standard evolutionary view and so forth. So it's unfortunate. And, I mean, so your professor essentially, what, did, what ended up happening in the end? Did you end up having your grade, uh, I guess, diminished at the end of the semester because of your views, or were you able to make 
back up uh, some of that work? What, what ended up happening to you? No, well, that was on the actual final. And so that that letter grade drop on the final ended up being a letter grade drop in the entire class, and there was no way to make it up. And at that time, I was, I guess, a sophomore or junior in the chemistry program, and I was a little too insecure to really take this professor on and challenge her and go to the dean. So I didn't do anything. I just let it go. And in retrospect, it would have been good to have publicly made a little bit of noise and to draw some awareness to this issue, but I really just let it go, and that was the end of it, unfortunately. Sure. Well, I mean, I actually, as sad as it is that your letter grades were marked down um, and you probably had a pretty strong case, my personal philosophy is we don't go around trying to encourage students to cause problems or get themselves into trouble over this issue. The stereotype out there is that, you know, students are always raising their hands in class and trying to stir up trouble uh, on the topic of evolution. Frankly, in my experience, it's really the exact opposite, <laughs> that the vast majority of the time, students are asking honest questions, and it's professors who are the ones who are being intolerant and are basically unwilling to tolerate questions on this issue, and then they become the aggressors, really, who are penalizing students or trying to embarrass or shame or bully students who have questions about evolution, the vast majority of the time, it's, it's not the students who are the ones causing the problems. Uh, and so what I often encourage students is, look, if you have questions about evolution, you know, don't get yourself into trouble. Don't become a martyr. You know, that's not what you need. What you need to do is to get your degree. Yeah. You need to go on and do well in school and succeed academically. And I encourage students typically to just keep their heads down, you know, to do good work, to excel academically, to to learn the issues. If they want to ask, if they want to raise the issue, frankly, you know, the best way to do it is just ask a respectful, thoughtful question in a way that, you know, no professor could ever say that they were doing something wrong. I mean, what's wrong with a student asking a respectful question? And at that point, if the professor wants to knock you down, then it's, they're the ones having the issue. And most of the vast majority of the time, the students that I encounter who are having problems on this issue, it was not them who were the instigators or the aggressors. Uh, it was the professor. And sometimes you have professors, actually, who will, at the beginning of a course, ask everyone in the class, okay, well, do any of you not believe in evolution? And maybe a, a few students will raise it. First of all, most students who don't believe in evolution immediately feel intimidated into silence, so they won't raise their hands, okay? But the few courageous ones who do raise their hands are then shamed, essentially. I mean, this is a shaming tactic that professors will use. They'll, they'll pick out those students and ridicule them as if they're ignorant or foolish or uneducated. And it's really sort of just a big, you know, peer pressure tactic to try to get students to conform and uh, to the evolutionary viewpoint and sort of bully them into surrendering to a Darwinian view. And, and sometimes it works. Usually it doesn't, although it certainly, what it does succeed in doing is getting anybody who's at the center of Darwinian evolution to keep their mouth shut. And, and I think that's really what the professor wants to accomplish is to shut down dialogue and discussion um, on this issue so there's sort of just, you know, conformity and uniformity in the classroom, which is not good for teaching students, you know, how science is supposed to operate, um, how science progresses. It really discourages scientific habits of thinking when professors act like this. But sadly, we, we see this sort of behavior from evolutionists literally on a daily basis. They, they don't want to have a dialogue. They don't want to have a discussion. Instead, they want to shut down discussion and debate in the scientific community. It is unfortunate. Thankfully, that wasn't my only experience here. I had another chemistry professor 
who I had this same conversation with. He started out the semester talking about evolution. It was his first presentation every semester in a chemistry class, interestingly. And after the presentation, I went to his office and I explained some of my scientific objections from a chemistry standpoint and just the statistics of uh, life coming from non-life. That was the main thing that I went to as a as a chemistry student, you know, the problem of homochirality and life and all this. And this professor, he had never heard this stuff. He was shocked. He was amazed. And the next semester, I took a class with him, and he changed his entire first presentation. The second semester, he said, evolution is the creation myth of science. And he goes, every worldview has its own creation myth. And a lot of scientists have bought into the creation myth of science, which is evolution. And I couldn't believe that he changed from this is fact to this is the going creation myth that a lot of scientists buy into. So he was really willing to consider the evidence and to begin to change his mind a little bit on it. So the one bad example wasn't the only example I encountered. No, that, that's great. And you know what? That actually is similar to my experience when I was in college. I took a lot of courses in evolution, and I had, a mixed, I had mixed experiences in some classes, Yes, the professors were very dogmatic, and you really didn't feel free to raise the issue or talk about it. In other classes, the professors were very open-minded and tolerant, and if you had a question or you were skeptical of Darwinian evolution or the origin of life, that was okay. And so I, I think, actually, I, I had a very similar experience to yours um, in, in terms of having, you know, sometimes it was okay to talk about the issue, sometimes it wasn't. So you work with the Discovery Institute. Would you tell me a little bit more about the Discovery Institute? Yeah, Discovery Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy think tank. We're based in Seattle. We actually deal with a lot of different issues ranging from transportation to communications to foreign affairs to technology to the topic of Darwinian evolution and intelligent design. And that's certainly our biggest program at Discovery Institute. It's called the Center for Science and Culture. And a big part of what the Center for Science and Culture does is we support scientific research and scholarship into intelligent design, really supporting uh, those scientists and scholars who are trying to develop ID as a scientific theory. Um, and we also do a fair amount of uh, getting word out to folks in the public, doing radio interviews like this, uh, helping people to publish books and creating curricula so people can understand the topic better. And then we also get involved sometimes with uh, defending scientists who are facing discrimination because of their views on intelligent design. And so, uh, but Discovery Institute is a lot bigger than just intelligent design, but uh, that's the program that I work in, uh, primarily helping scientists and educators to uh, do research and discuss and investigate the debate. And how did you get interested in the debate over intelligent design? Well, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, actually, when I was in college, um, and I had different experiences in my classes. Some of my classes were very you know, open-minded, where the professors would allow you to talk about the issue. But I would have to say that was, that was a minority of my classes. I probably took about a dozen courses in college that dealt with um, evolution and the origins of life. And in most of my classes, unfortunately, there was one and only one viewpoint that was discussed. And that was sort of the pro-evolutionary viewpoint. And there really were no opportunities for students to uh, discuss and debate other scientific views and express other viewpoints that sort of descended from an evolutionary uh, approach. And so when I was a uh, junior in college, I was at UC San Diego, which is a, a very pro-evolution but very science-focused uh, public university 
uh, in California. And so uh, I was taking all these classes, and some friends and I decided to start a student club to allow our friends and our, our really our, our people that we had in our classes um, to be able to talk about the debate over evolution. Most of our classes were not allowing us to have the discussion, so we started a student club called the Intelligent Design and Evolution Awareness Club to discuss and debate the topic in a way that most of our classes were not allowing us to do. Um, and that club was a real success. We had a lot of fun. We, we tried to make it a place where everybody felt welcome, whether they were um, undergraduates, graduate students, whether they were atheists or Christians, uh, whether they were creationists or evolutionists or intelligent design proponents or anything in between. We wanted everybody to feel welcome and able to just come there and have a good, solid dialogue over the topic of origin. And so that was sort of how I first got interested in this was through being involved with the student club when I was an undergraduate at UC San Diego. And uh, then sort of as I, after I graduated, uh, the club was very successful. We had lots of people coming of, of different views. We decided to start a nonprofit, a 501c3, to help students to start similar clubs on other college and also high school campuses. And so that is how another group called the Idea Center got formed. And that was formed in 2001. And since that time, the Idea Center has helped probably over 60 or 70 um, idea clubs form on different college and high school campuses, not just in the U.S., but also internationally. And so uh, then uh, sort of, I guess, I decided after I finished my, my undergraduate and master's degree in earth sciences that I needed to get a job, so I went to law school. And while I was in law school, I continued to study the topic, but more from a legal angle rather than just a scientific one. And so... Uh, I actually took a few courses in constitutional law and did an independent study um, in the topic of teaching evolution in public schools and teaching intelligent design and all of the legalities related to that. So that sort of just increased my interest in the topic. And, uh, and so somehow, eventually, I found a job working at Discovery Institute where I get to, get to work in the, in the issue, which is a lot of fun. That's exciting. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 FM and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. We're talking to Casey Luskin of the Discovery Institute, an intelligent design expert with graduate degrees in both science and law who approaches this from both the scientific and the legal perspectives. It's been a great interview so far, and I hope you tune in for the rest of the interview. The audience is aware of some of the different reasons that we cite very often for not buying into the general theory of natural evolution. I've often said on this show that the transitionary evidence, both in the fossil record and even in the genetic record, is lacking. And by that, I mean in the genetic record. If junk DNA is not junk DNA, then the whole pseudogene argument seems to fall apart. Uh, the mechanism of evolution is insufficient. Natural selection does happen, but natural selection working on positive information increasing mutations does not. Life does not come from non-life. The existence of information and design are inexplicable through purely random processes. And then the start of the universe from nothing a finite time ago is the ultimate question that a naturalistic worldview would not be able to answer. So we recite those things often on this show, and those are kind of a negative apologetic. Those are kind of a criticism of naturalistic evolution. On the flip side of the coin, as a creationist, I, I believe that the Bible is true, and we've given a defense of that many times over on the show, and because of that, I believe in creation. Now, somehow, I, ideas in the middle of these two different areas of the spectrum, 
Intelligent design is a scientific theory, like you mentioned. It's not a faith or a belief system. And it is something that as a scientist, I can believe, yes, the science points this direction. It's not just the creation story of Genesis, so to say, like a creationist might buy. I think a lot of times people conflate the two. In fact, just walking in this morning, we saw a guy here in the studio, and and he said, uh, yes, uh, ID and creationism are identical, and they're bleepity bleep. And so what is going on here? What is intelligent design? Why are people just conflating it with maybe a faith or something like that and refusing to see the scientific validity of it? Okay, great questions, Nate. So, yeah, what is intelligent design? Well, intelligent design is a scientific theory which holds that many aspects of life in the universe are better explained by an intelligent cause rather than an undirected cause like, say, natural selection. And as you mentioned, you know, you guys talk on your show a lot about sort of the, the negative case against Darwinian evolution. Um, and sometimes intelligent design is mistaken as strictly being a negative argument against evolution. That is not what intelligent design is. Intelligent design includes a very strong positive argument, which is based upon finding in nature the kind of information and complexity which in our experience only comes from intelligence. So I can give you a really brief example here. Uh, in all of our experience, whenever we find something like a language-based code, that always comes from an intelligent cause. Whenever we have experience in the natural world around us with a language-based code, and we know where it comes from, we know its origin, in the world around us, it always traces back to a mind or an intelligent being. And so what do we find is at the very, very heart of life. At the very heart of life in our DNA is a language-based code. I mean, leading scientists, uh, Francis Crick, Richard Dawkins, uh, Francis Collins, they all acknowledge that at the heart of life is essentially uh, a digital code that uses computer-like programming to convert information from our DNA uh, to be able to generate some kind of an output, which essentially is, is protein. Our DNA contains a language-based code that contains computer-like commands that are processed by the machinery of our cells to convert that information in our DNA into protein-based machines. But where in our experience do things like language-based code, computer-like information processing, or machine-like structures come from? In all of our experience, each of those things, language-based code, computer information processing, machine-like structures, those things always come from intelligence. But yet that is exactly what is at the heart of life. So we think that intelligent design is a compelling, positive explanation for what we see at the very heart of life. And really the only way to explain using a positive argument the origin of what we see in life, life's language-based code in our DNA, the information processing that goes on through the molecular machinery in our cells, and then the very fact that our cells are full of these machine structures, the only way to explain the origin of those things is to invoke an intelligent cause. And indeed, when you look at the, the technical literature and you look for unguided evolutionary explanations for DNA, for the genetic code, for the molecular machinery in our cells that does all this information processing, you don't find anything remotely close to an evolutionary explanation. So yes, you can certainly make an argument against an evolutionary uh, uh, paradigm for explaining these complex features, but if you want to make a positive argument for where they came from, you're going to have to go to intelligent design, because in all of our experience, a language-based code, machine-like structures, computer information processing, those things come only from intelligence in all of our experience. So the best explanation that we would say is 
intelligent design. So that, in a really, really brief sort of you know 60-second nutshell, is the is the, is the scientific case for intelligent design. It gets a lot more technical, a lot more complicated. There's a lot more to talk about than that, but that's the essence of the argument. It's a positive argument that uses the, the methods of science to make its claim. And in my argument that I made there, I invoked nothing close to religion or faith or divine revelation. Rather, I invoked the methods of science, looking at the world around us, trying to understand where does information, where does language-based information come from? And in our experience, it only comes from intelligence. So when we find that in life, we can infer an intelligent cosmos at work. This argument is using the standard methods of historical sciences. It's not an argument based upon religion or faith or divine revelation. It has nothing to do, frankly, with religion. And that's why within the ID community, uh, you can find people of a variety of different religious beliefs. Sure, many ID proponents are Christians. I myself am a Christian. I don't try to make that any kind of a secret, nor does anybody in the ID movement try to hide their personal religious beliefs. But what you find in the ID community is that there are people of a variety of beliefs. There are Christians, there are Jews, there are Muslims, there are people who uh, are not religious, there are actually agnostics and atheists who support intelligent design. What that tells you is that intelligent design is not united around some kind of a religious belief system or some kind of a faith-based view. It's united around a conviction that there is empirical evidence in nature for an intelligent agent being behind life in the universe. If it was about religion, you could not have non-religious people supporting intelligent design. And in fact, there was a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder who wrote a, a book, and the book was titled, the subtitle was, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. That book, subtitle, that professor could not exist if intelligent design was a religious viewpoint, because this is an atheist who say, you know what, I find merit to intelligent design arguments. He came to it with no religious commitments, and yet he saw merit to the argument. That is because intelligent design is not a religious argument. It's an argument based on the evidence. So when people, like you know, the, the, your friend that you mentioned that you spoke with earlier today, when people try to conflate intelligent design with creationism, in my experience, that is typically an attempt to dismiss the arguments for intelligent design without actually addressing them. It's actually a, an attempt to avoid dealing with the arguments and the evidence for intelligent design. And I suppose, before I say anything else, and this can be said real quick, we should probably also explain what is creationism and how is ID different from creationism. Well, creationism is basically the viewpoint that we can find scientific evidence that supports uh, some kind of a genesis-based account of uh, the, you know, the creation of the world. And it, it always appeals both to a supernatural or divine creator, um, and it always tries to get into some kind of a you know, religious view of some scriptural text explaining how we can harmonize science with this uh, religious text, like the Bible, like Genesis, and so forth. Intelligent design is different from creationism. It doesn't start with the Bible. It starts with the data. And it says, what can we learn from a strictly scientific investigation of the data? And then it says, okay, well, we can actually look at the data and find a, a scientifically-based case for intelligence. So ID is different from creationism because it does not start with some religious text. It starts with the evidence that we see in the world around us, and it's also different from creationism because ID limits its claim to what we can learn through a scientific investigation. So creationism will, will always make conclusions about the identity of the designer, whether the designer is supernatural or natural, 
uh, creationism will always get into religious conclusions about, you know, you should believe in this divine, divinely inspired, you know, holy book. And that's fine if creationism wants to do that, but ID is different. ID does not get into those religious questions. Rather, it simply infers that an intelligent cause, as it were, and does not try to address religious questions about maybe the identity of the designer or, you know, what kind of a church we should go to on Sundays or Saturdays or whatever day you want to go. It doesn't get into those questions. ID is about making scientific conclusions. Um, another major difference, and I'll say this real quick, is most people, when they think of creationism, think of the young Earth, 6,000-year-old Earth view of creationism, where you know people believe the Earth is very young. ID definitely does not take that view. The vast majority of leading ID proponents, myself included in that, uh, accept an old Earth and have no problem with the Earth being billions of years old. So those are some of the differences, I would say. I think a lot of times when people conflate the two, it's a powerful straw man attack. They're not attacking the evidence. They're actually attacking a straw man. Another thing that I think is important to notice is in the intelligent design community, we have fewer biases than, than those outside. As a naturalistic scientist, you come to the table and evolution is what's been called the only game in town. You don't have an option. You have to come up with a natural solution, so that's all you got. In the intelligent design approach, there is no bias like that. You're coming and you're saying, we're willing to look at the evidence regardless of what it is. We're not limiting our possibilities to only one type of cause, a naturalistic cause. So I think you have fewer biases. In other words, you're freer to actually investigate the evidence at its face value. Also, I think Dr. Behe in his book, The Edge of Evolution, made a great point that if naturalistic evolution is false and we're buying into it, this is going to undermine all of our scientific endeavors because we're looking at the world with a wrong set of lenses. Whereas if we can look through the right set of lenses, we're going to be able to do all of science with a better perspective. So he said that getting this right is actually really important to the rest of science. We can't miss this. Is that correct? I completely agree with everything you're saying. Uh, Intelligent design's motto is basically, let's follow the evidence wherever it leads. So ID is not constrained by philosophical uh, preconceptions or predeterminations of what the answer has to be. If the answer to a particular question is, you know, material, natural causes, ID is completely fine with that. But if the answer is intelligent design, then ID has the freedom to follow the evidence in that direction as well. This, as you very correctly put it, Nate, stands in stark contrast with a naturalistic mindset, which basically predetermines all of the answers and says all of the answers to scientific questions will always uh, refer only to material causes. And intelligent design says, you know what? Science is great. We can use science to infer material causes, but we can also use the methods of science, repeatable, reliable methods of science, to conclude that an intelligent design uh, was involved as well. And so ID is much freer than naturalistic evolution to find answers to scientific questions because it's not restricted by these philosophical preconceptions. And as you said, when you, when you have those preconceptions there, that limits what science can discover and it might prevent us from finding the truth. So I would think if you really want to seek truth, uh, science is great. Let's use science to seek truth. But if you really want to seek truth, you're going to have to get rid of the philosophical preconceptions. You're going to have to be opened up to the possibility that an intelligent designer was involved in the history of the universe. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Casey Leskin. You'll have to tune in next week for the second part of the interview. This was just the first. You can get this at godsolutionshow.com and tune in next week to hear the rest of the interview. The evidence for 
a creator that created this universe and this world intelligently is overwhelming. If you've never come to a point of saying, yes, I need that creator in my life, today is the time that you could do that. We've discussed the evidence for Christ on this show for a few years now. And if you're at the point where you want to put your faith and your trust in Jesus, I would ask you to verbalize that through prayer this morning. Coming to him saying, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again to give me new life. I ask you to forgive my sins and I ask you to come into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. Well, if you took that step this morning, the Bible says that you have been adopted into Christ's family and that you can look forward to a life with him on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. To find out more about Casey Luskin, go to discovery.org. Again, go to discovery.org and you'll find out more about Casey at discovery.org. And you'll find out more about the Discovery Institute there as well. I'm so glad that you listened. Before we get off the air, I got to say happy birthday to my dad. Dad, you're the best dad that anyone could ever ask for. I'm so thankful for all that you've done for me and for how you've continually encouraged me in my walk with God. I love you a ton, Dad, and I hope you have a wonderful birthday today. Well, thank you so much for listening. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon.